Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As the pandemic period shows signs of contraction, so goes economic initiatives that were enacted at the height with intent to ease financial burdens, including those related to housing. Our conversation today will examine the implications to the U.S. housing market of forbearance programs coming to a close. Uh, joining me here on the line for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Leslie Falcone. Senior Fixed Income Strategist Americas, as well as John Wallishan, Real Estate and Lodging Analyst Americas, both with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Leslie, John, it's great to be with you both. Good morning, and looking forward to diving into some of these topics today with you on the podcast. Good morning, Dan. Thank you. Absolutely. So, uh, John, perhaps as a starting point in the way of some opening context, can you remind our clients, our listeners, about what these mortgage forbearance programs are, why and when they were enacted, and perhaps even clarify, John, is forbearance the same as forgiveness? Yeah, the whole pro- the whole concept of mortgage forbearance started uh, as part and parcel of uh, the CARES Act that was passed early on uh, as the pandemic really sort of uh, exploded across the world, and particularly here in the U.S., and uh, what uh, what the original program did was, particularly for any loans that were ultimately backed by government agencies, be that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or the FHA, it allowed uh, it allowed people uh, that were in uh, financial distress to delay uh, mortgage payments for up to twelve months. Now there have been several subsequent. Uh, um, extensions of that program and currently that program uh has been extended through june 2021 uh and certainly is it possible it could, it could be extended but basically uh the nature of the program the program was to help those homeowners that who were in need of assistance because obviously there were significant number of jobs lost uh, particularly early on in the pandemic uh and so aid has sort of helped them bridge that gap number one and number two to avoid uh, what we saw uh, post the global financial crisis, which was this mass foreclosure wave. Now, it's very, very important to understand, to your second question, that forbearance is not forgiveness. Forbearance is that, you know, we will allow you to uh, def- effectively defer your payment. Uh, now, um, you know, we can talk about this a little bit later, you know, how the re- how ultimate repayment programs will work. Uh, but, you know, I think it accomplished a number of things. It took a lot of, a lot of pressure off a lot of people because, uh, you know, you know, job losses obviously, uh, hit people very hard. And the last thing we want to do is see people, uh, displaced from their homes. Uh, and also you had this time, unlike the, uh, global financial crisis, the federal government from both a, fin- uh, a fiscal and monetary perspective stepped in very, very quickly. Uh, so that certainly did help, uh, 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 you know, it did help sort of arrest what was potentially a pretty difficult situation in housing. But I do want to emphasize again, forbearance is not loan forgiveness. Well, John, thank you for that context, that clarity to start things off. So as a follow-up, I alluded to this a few moments ago, the world is starting to largely move out of the pandemic period, which of course is good news. However, with that comes the fact that these mortgage forbearance programs are set to expire in relatively short order. So with that in mind, John, how do you feel that the U.S. housing market is positioned at this time? Yeah, well, it's interesting, and it's a question that we get a lot. And the key question is, 
as these forbearance programs end, are we staring down the barrel of a major foreclosure crisis? And it's a very, very legitimate question. So just to put some numbers around this, uh, at at its peak, uh, of the roughly 53 million mortgages that are outstanding in the United States today, uh, a little over 7 million were in some form of forbearance program. Uh, As of when we published our report, uh, very recently, that number was down to 2.3 million, and it continues to decline. Now, um, to put it in a little bit more context, of those 2.3 million mortgages, um, about 1.7 million are backed ultimately by either Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or the FHA. Why is this important? Because the way those programs are structured, among the many ways uh, a forbearance can be, uh, can be cured, if you will, is to take whatever payments have been foreborn. So let's just make it easy. Let's say your monthly mortgage payment was $1,000 and you missed a year's worth of payments. Instead of having to pay that $12,000 back immediately, uh, you can, as one of your options, take that $12,000, put it at the end of your loan. It's what's called a silent second mortgage that is non-interest bearing. So uh, for all intents and purposes, that money would not need to get paid back until you either paid off your mortgage, refinanced your mortgage, or sold your home. So that will take a significant burden off a lot of people. Now, uh, rightfully so, people would say, well, that leaves more than 600,000 mortgages that are either in private label mortgage-backed securities or on bank balance sheets. What about them? Now, I will tell you that there is no consistent way in which uh, these uh, these entities are handling forbearance because these are all going to be governed at the state level. Uh, but you know, one thing that I think both Leslie and I have a high degree of confidence in that. Uh, Based on the experience of the global financial crisis, uh, particularly from a political perspective, that we think that uh, a lot of these lenders are going to be, uh, for lack of a better word, eager to work with borrowers. Now, we don't want to tell you that there's not going to be any foreclosures. Of course, there are going to be some. But I think the key here is that if you look at the relatively small number, it's like 2% of all mortgages outstanding uh, that are at risk of forbearance. And we don't minimize any forbearance, number one. It's a relatively small number. The other thing is number two, uh, homeowners uh, have amassed more than $21 trillion. Let me say that number again, $21 trillion in equity because home prices have done so well. So in the event that uh, some people are forced to sell their homes or do or do what's called a deed in lieu of foreclosure, a there is a potentially enough equity to help uh, to help them um, move on without having to write a check to the bank. And the other thing is there is such a dearth of supply of existing home product out there that we feel the market could readily absorb uh, those foreclosed homes. So I think it's a long it's a it's a long answer, but the short the short takeaway should be we don't think this represents a, a, a major negative for the housing market. Thank you, John. That was very helpful, and I do want to. Re- revisit the topic of foreclosure mitigation involving government and private sector collaborations a bit later in the conversation, though, Leslie, in part, what has made homeownership so attractive in recent time being how mortgage rates remain, historically speaking, still at low levels. So on a going
going forward basis, Leslie, what's your rate outlook from here? Where might rates be headed? Well, I mean, as, as John and I have written about numerous times, and, and actually we've, we've spoken about, you know, on the show several times as well, is that you know, when people think of the mortgage rate, it's not just about where the 10-year Treasury yield is, is heading. Obviously, the 10-year Treasury yield is a driver of mortgage rates, but it's also a combination of where the current coupon mortgage spread is to the Treasury, the health of the mortgage servicer, which we, that we, we call those the primary and secondary spreads. And all of those variables end up contributing to where the mortgage rate ends up. And, you know, as we know, and as you pointed out, listen, last year, mortgage rate had gotten to historically low levels. And this has helped, you know, fuel the housing market outside of the obvious supply and demand technicals that we're currently facing. But it's, it's helped fuel the housing and also helped the consumer to keep these mortgage rates relatively low to try and, you know, put a little extra money in their pocket or keep their costs down as we go through this, you know, COVID recovery. But as we look forward, if I just look forward in terms of where we see our rate forecast, for example, like we, we still believe that interest rates will probably trend towards that, you know, 2%, you know, by the end of the year. And, and you know, when we start to get to, you know, towards that 2% level, you're going to have more than likely mortgage rates, you know, over 3%. If we remember when we hit that, you know, three and a quarter back in 2018 in 10-year yields, you had mortgage rates, you know, heading into the 4% level for 30-year mortgage rates. Now, that is really the trend that we think is going to continue, assuming that, you know, the mortgage servicer remains healthy. And one of those one of those drivers of this health has been the continued support by the Fed and the continued monthly purchases of mortgage-backed securities, which we don't think obviously is going to last forever. Our outlook is that they start to pull back, you know, in the first quarter of 2022. And when that happens, if it's combined with a rise in interest rates, then you, then you could see, you know, that, that 30-year mortgage rate, you know, go to that 345-ish level. But, but there are so many variables that that really contribute to that rate in and of itself. So it's hard to pick the exact point, but given our interest rate outlook and the fact that we believe servicers, you know, knock on wood, remain in the stage of, of, of health that they've seen since the March 2020, um, you know, the trend is going to be higher overall. Thank you for that, Leslie. So getting back to the point how these forbearance plans are soon winding down, what structures are in place so that homeowners avoid feeling all of that weight of accumulated missed payments? Yeah, I mean, John, I mentioned some of them <clears throat> in the conversation, but what, you know, people always try to look at the housing market in terms of the great financial crisis. And we know this is a much different type of environment. You know, households, the household in and of itself is much stronger than what it was. Fed acted much quicker in this crisis than it did in, during the GFC. So part of this forbearance plan, and, and, and in my opinion, you know, particularly with the current administration, it is one that they want to keep <clears throat> consumers in their home as long as possible. So they've started, they've, they've structured certain sort of um, how to leave forbearance or get out of forbearance. And, you know, one of them, which John, you know, spoke about as well, is that you just simply pay off the forbearance. And most of the people that are doing that, and and as discussed earlier, given the amount and the benefit of the size of the home equity that consumers have in their house, they have the ability to sell their home on on top of a supply-demand shortage and pay off their forbearance if they choose to do so. You know, they also have various repayment plans in terms of, you know, trying to get them on a regular monthly payment you know, they also have it where they push the payment to the end of the mortgage loan. But all of these really are dependent on 
the health of the mortgage servicer because mortgage servicers are the ones that really can decide and will work with you in terms of and the consumer and so which one benefits. But again, the mortgage servicer has, has a say. It's not like a, a slate saying that this is what you need to do. So the health of the um, housing market, the health of the servicer is really important in terms of trying to alleviate some of these forbearance concerns. But as, you know, as John has mentioned, you know, there's less than, you know, 2.3 million mortgage foreborn currently. You know, it's, we don't believe it's going to be cause a hiccup to the housing market. I mean, obviously everything depends on if it, everything happens at once and you have this perfect storm of a large rise in rates, a large rise in the mortgage, in the, in the mortgage rate and a large rise in the treasury rate, which really is ultimately continuously restricted to the consumer and might cause a small hiccup. But otherwise than that, you know, given the strength of the housing market and the and household balance sheets, it shouldn't be an impact that is something that's long lasting. Thank you, Leslie. And then, John, as we begin to close out, is there anything else you would like to add in terms of how the government is collaborating with the private sector in order to prevent mass foreclosures from occurring? Uh, well, collaborating is an interesting word, Dan, and uh, I know we've referenced the global financial crisis a lot, but I, but I think it, it's important and instructive to remember what happened post the global financial crisis in terms of the widely televised congressional hearings where uh, bank uh, bank CEOs and other financial services executives were hauled in front of Congress for uh, rather uncomfortable hearings. Now, I'm not here to defend anybody, be they politicians or any or or, or mortgage executives or anybody else. But uh, I think it's important. It is important to understand the current political environment. And this is not meant to pick on any party. But the Democrats were in charge uh, during uh, the post global financial period, and they are in charge now. Uh, they also uh, regulate these institutions largely. And so uh, our sense is that there is going to be a greater sense of cooperation between the government and the private sector, i.e. those mortgages that are not backed, ultimately backed by a government institution, to do everything they can to work with lenders, I mean to work with borrowers, uh, to find uh, equitable solutions uh, that help keep people in their homes uh, and help uh, to not disrupt the market. Now, again, we want to be clear, that doesn't mean there will be no foreclosures, uh, but we think there's going to be a very, very strong incentive, both on, from a political perspective and a regulatory perspective, to come up with programs that uh, can help people, whether that's through mortgage modifications, uh, whether that's through the private sector, uh, employing uh, those silent seconds that we mentioned uh, that are being used uh, by by uh, the government agencies. Uh, but it's our, our, our best judgment that we're going to find a much more cooperative environment this time than what we saw last time. Well, John, Leslie, very timely conversation. Appreciate your insights into what the near-to-medium-term future might have in store for the U.S. housing market as these forbearance programs begin to wind down, as well as how the government and private sector are working together in order to protect homeowners. So a great catching up with you both. Appreciate the insights, and we'll look forward to having you back on again with us soon. 
Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. And again, today we've been joined by Leslie Falconio, Senior Fixed Income Strategist Americas, as well as John Wallachin, Real Estate and Lodging Analyst Americas, both with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located up on UBS dot com forward slash CIO, including the publication that Leslie and John have been making reference to during our conversation today, real estate markets, U.S. housing market, forbearance unlikely to represent a major headwind. So for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about today's topic or receive a copy of that publication directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 